The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop worrying about code generation putting you out of a job and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 171 with guest Kathleen Dollar, recorded live at DevConnections 2006 Orlando. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com Also by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who keeps forgetting to write jokes for me, Carl Franklin! Hey everybody, welcome to .NET Rocks! We're here with a throng, a teeming throng of a people. A mass. A mass of people. Even though Dan Appleman, Jubal Lowy, and Dino Esposito are all talking right now, all these hundreds of people came to see us. <laughs> so, we're here at Dev Connections in Orlando, Florida, and uh, in Wally World. Hi, Richard. Well, you know... I left a whole pile of water cooling gear to come to see you guys. Yeah, you. I, want you to, I wanted you to know how much you mean to me that I would actually stop playing with toys, fly across <laughs> the country, and and you know Orlando is not high on my list of favorite places to go. Right. It's the, that's the truth. But these quick trips, get a chance to see everybody. It's good to be. And of course, we're here with Kathleen Dollard, which is what the show is all about. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. How you doing? Welcome to the show. Yeah, and you, and you get an in-person show finally. I I actually did one that was did partially in person. in person. I went to Connecticut. I was part of an Aneta um, tour that I was doing, and I was there with Carl. And you were across the country, and I don't remember letting you get a word in edgewise but, the entire time. I was okay with that. I, I like I like being a disembodied voice too. It's always fun. <laughs> Kathleen Dollard, um, you're uh, a developer, a Visual Basic developer, and a consultant. You do a lot of work with code generation, but a lot of a lot of things. You're writing about generics. You're writing about uh, new features in in uh, Visual Studio 2005. What uh, what is currently on your mind these days? 
Well, the code generation stuff has changed a lot, and because of that, it's got me focusing a lot on generics right now. I think generics is the most important thing to push out as part of the 2005 uh, framework. For one thing, it's the only new language feature that we've had in a very, very long time. Yeah. And on the surface, it looks like it's kind of superficial, cleans up some code, makes some things more robust. But as you get deeper into it, it actually has the potential to revolutionize our architectures in a way that simplifies the templates of code generation. Ah. So it's a big circular thing there where the generics, um, we'd like to get to a point with code generation where the only things we have to generate are this, whatever we're using to access SQL, whether it's a, um, a d dynamic SQL statement with parameters, we always want to at least use parameters for mm. SQL injection, or whether it's a store procedure call. We have that that's unique to what we're actually doing. We have the push into to fields, however we're doing that, off of a reader or whatever. Um, and then we've got the push back into the command to load. And that's really the pieces of a data access layer yeah. that are unique to each thing. And so instead of having thousands of lines of code, we can have 100 lines of code that we're generating. We uh, spoke about code generation uh, several times on this show, but it's always good to reiterate the numbers. Um, you do a lot of consulting. You go in and, and do big projects. And... And what is the kind of time savings that you see when you're using code generation? I think the number you gave us last time was about 30, 30 to 35 percent. It depends a lot on the project because oh. some projects have a really, you know, they're, they're forms over data. There's a whole lot we can get. They're very specific architectures. Yeah. Um, and other ones aren't, don't have nearly as much um, payback. But I think that conservatively, we're at the 25 to 35 percent. Some projects is going to be significantly more than that time savings. Um, I think that we're going to see that a lot more with generics. At this moment, I actually think that generic architectures are probably a bigger uh, benefit than yeah. uh, code generation is, as of this moment, if you had to pick one. I is think that really a maturity of the product issue? Um, I think it's the fact that, that we haven't – generics is like a new a new place that we can get traction. Right. It's brand new. And mm -hmm. so the traction that we can get there, is it's new. And, and we've yeah. got a lot of stuff, a lot of places that we have code, particu particularly in middle-tier layers – that we're laying it out the way we, we do, basically, so we can return a type because we, we don't want to return right. an object or something generalized. Well, that's the code that you want to attack in terms of generics. The, um, uh, there may be some confusion between code generation and object relational market. Um, uh, modeling. Yeah. Modeling. Thank well, you. Okay, actually, the, I'm going to correct you just a little bit. because okay, here we go. We have object relational mapping, which is what I think that you That's meant. what I'm talking about. We also RM, have yeah. object role modeling. They both have yes. the acronym of ORM, which is quite confusing. And I think we just don't mean ORM now, so we can just skip right. Okay. I mean, we don't mean object role modeling. We can yeah. go straight to object relational mapping. Right. And mapping between the database and the, the UI, someplace in there, the mapping is really important that we do it. Mm -hmm. The question is when we're going to do it. Do we do it at runtime or do we do it at design time? My distinction of what an object relational mapping tool is, is one that does it at runtime. I do mapping and I actually use that phrase a lot in my book. I've moved away from it because I think it's confusing to, to call design time mapping object relational mapping because most of the tools out there that do um, ORM are runtime tools. Well, I guess I'm talking about the design time tools. Yeah. That, that, that's the one that seems to, uh, you know, right, people, that's, people tend to fall on one side or the other of that right, fence. Right. And that's tied closely in with code generation. And right now, it's one of the big questions but people have. But it isn't have. the same thing. The, exactly. Right. Yeah. 
So if you're doing code generation and you want to have an exact match to your database, then you don't need to do any mapping. Right. But to say that from day one to day end of your project lifecycle, you will always have a direct one-to-one -one mapping between your database and your eventually what shows up in your eye through whatever business object plumbing you've got, yeah. that's a pretty strong statement to commit to. <laughs> I think right. it's pretty much invariably wrong. Yeah. Well, I do, but since that's my side of the fence, I try not. To. <laughs> sure. I, I just I try not to be too obnoxious about well, it. No, no, you no. and I are going to have this conversation again in in a, in a few weeks at DevTeach. Okay. Because we're on that panel. That's right. right? We're on a panel at DevTeach, and at DevTeach, I will actually be talking. I'm doing a talk there about uh, about code generation in 2005 specifically, partial classes and generics. But so, I didn't mean to say that you know mm -hmm. that 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 this is wrong, a wrong idea. It's just. There are extremes of it, right? And as you said, as you just pointed out, and this is the clarification I want to make, that just to say that there will always be a one-to-one -one mapping is a pretty big commitment, and you're basically predicting the future. It's pretty inflexible. Right. And that, you know, anything that's inflexible is inherently going to fail. Right. But on that side, it's a simplicity that's extreme. And this right. is why um, CodeSmith, which I, I really think is, is great. CodeSmith. Um, CodeSmith is a, is a very simple product people can use in terms of getting traction and code generation very quickly. And I take my hat off to Eric for putting that together for yeah. people. The problem is, at least in the early versions, it did rely on this direct mapping. And, and that's why I haven't gone that route. Right. Because I don't feel, I've never seen a situation I was willing to make that commitment to. Now, um, CodeSmith is growing up just like everything else. There's mm -hmm. more options there. It's just, um, it, I still don't feel like they've got that story. And what I really right. want us to get to, what I really think that everybody, um, Eric, myself, all of the other 300 and some odd people that are doing something in the co-generation space, because there's just billions of things out there, mm. um, you know, we are not moving towards a standardized metadata. There yeah. is no movement in that direction, mm. and that changes everything. The standardized in terms of in terms of domain specific, or well, or just a general metadata. Right. When when. I talk about mapping, my intent, my discussion is to take it from a database into a, a mapped, mapped into some sort of a metadata. It's, it's a transitory thing that's for the purpose of code generation, and it's basically describing the mapping between the database and the business objects. Okay. Ultimately, that's what it is. I see. So that's what I mean when I say metadata. Okay. But the outcome is an XML document. And because nobody is doing exactly the same thing in that space, we can't interchange metadata. And that means that the problem is we're trying to combine the problem of mapping with the problem of code generation. If we can ever have a standardized metadata, then we can have totally independent products that create metadata and a different set of independent products that do the code generation. Mm. And that's the right way to do it. What we're I doing see. now is just wrong. <laughs> and we, we're just not moving that direction yet. And hopefully... Hopefully we will, but... Um, Do you see anybody, anybody trying to go that route, at least? It, not right now. Getting back to generics, uh, I, I think we sort of glossed over that point, and we, I wanted to back up a little bit and get some uh, prequel to this. So, so specifically, how are generics helping in the code generation space? Um, the problem that one of the problems that we get to, and, and actually it was a problem I didn't recognize when I wrote my book, and, and so my book has got tons of really, really complex templates, and they're very hard for people to uptake. And I really, watching people's success with CodeSmith was one of the ways that I realized that we could, um, it wasn't a good route to go. Yeah. And generics allows us to simplify templates perhaps by an order of magnitude. Because you don't have to have so many type specific, so much type specific code in yeah, the template. Yeah, you, you just yeah. have, you don't have much code, you don't have very much code left, and the code that's left is relatively easy to generate. Yeah, and that's good. You get rid of the hard stuff. When you're talking about templates, you're usually talking about a 
uh, middle tier stuff, right? Um, I generally am. I did some stuff in my book on generating uh, UIs, but the other impact that 2005 has on us in code generation is that the the tools have gotten so darn good. Yeah. They're so good. I can build a Windows UI that looks so good so fast. I really have to question the validity of right. doing any sort of code generation in that space right now. Well, you build the template, you might as well build the forms, right? Well, it, partially that and partially that we've got, um, it's always been a problem how to org rearrange. And mm. so rearranging, when we can drag and drop our business objects on to get started, yeah. and then we just start rearranging it, we probably put it in a table layout um, because that's a, has, we have a lot of traction there in terms of pretty UIs. Yeah. Um, we start doing this type of stuff, and I'm just like, well, the, gen the actual code generation we can do is, is pretty trivial. At it's, this point. Yeah, I mean, in the end, code generation is really about plumbing, and there's so little plumbing on the UI now. That's right, and it's it's sweet. I love it. Yeah, I'm really it's glad not a we bad thing that we're at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm really glad that we're solving that in a different way because um, I think that, that for those UIs that were readily generated, which is those that were just sort of, you know, I don't care what it looks like. I've got 400 forms in this app, and 100 of them yeah. matter, and 300 have to be there. Yeah. And those are the ones, those 300 were the ones we used to be able to generate. Right. But now, boy, drank, drank, and you're done. Yeah. I mean, it's just not something that I feel like we, we need to... It, took ju it would take just as much time to plug that relationship into the template and generate it as it would be to just drop it on the form. Yeah. So So is there any is there anything going on, though, with reusing forms, like creating a master form that gets, maybe the UI gets created on the fly from uh, from templates? Instead of trying having to build, you know, four hundred separate forms. Well, I think some people have always done that. You know, some yeah. people have done followed that pattern. I think you can still follow that pattern. You can actually follow that pattern and leverage some of the things in um, in the two thousand and five things like table layout, which which right. are, are beautiful. Yeah. Um, so you can do that if you, if yeah. you want to. Um, it's just it used to take at least five minutes to build a form, yeah. and now it takes thirty five seconds, and yeah. so it's just a, a difference in sure. terms of scope of what we're trading off. With. Sure, the real the real work is in the middle tier. So getting back to the middle tier, um, do you, do you, when you're when you're building these things, do you try to make a absolute middle tier that's nothing but logic, and uh, try to separate as much of that out as you can? I actually don't sweat too much the distinction between the data and the middle tier. And part of the reason for that mm. is that the database contains a tremendous amount of business logic. And so we're sure. kidding ourselves when we say that the business logic is all in the middle tier. Yeah. And when I say that, I think people sometimes forget the fact that the length of a string field is business logic. Yeah. The name of a field is business object, yeah. is business logic. Which things go together in a table, sure. that's all business logic. Sure. So I'm not talking about even, I haven't gotten to constraints yet, yeah. which we have there much less store procedures that might have logic in them. So we have a tremendous amount of logic already in the database. That's the first place you generally put Exactly, because the first thing you to. do is to find your database. So you've just created your business logic. So to me, that distinction is not all that important. There's a tremendously important distinction between the UI and the the uh, business tier. So that split, trying to make that very clear, is critical. And it's going to really hurt people because sometime in the next couple of years, we will be changing our UIs. We will go to yeah. an Avalon-based, or right. now we're called sure. Windows Presentation Framework. Yeah. And when we go to that, we're going to invalidate the current UIs. And if you think about it, a caption is business logic. Mm. 
You know, we have things in our user interfaces, even if we're trying to put our business logic up above, that is is sitting there. So there's some things like getting captions from a um, from the middle tier, having meta, having that kind of information. Captions. Captions. The, the Do you mean like the things that hover, waiting hover over? Oh, Tooltips as well, absolutely. Tooltips tool are also text in the UI, basically. All every piece of text that you have in the UI, every single thing that you would think about possibly localizing, that's business logic. That's not, you know, that's not something right. that it's, it should be related to the field. Don't hard code that in a form. Well, we, we are. We're doing that right yeah. now. Almost every form you create because yeah. it's easy. And that's something that we're going to need to address. At the very least, when you build Avalon forms, you're going to have to restate all your captions. I was very impressed. Uh, Richard and I have been talking to Rocky Latka a lot about CSLA.NET 2.0. is mm -hmm. uh, the second well, second .NET generation of his uh, CSLA framework. And uh, we're, we're both very impressed with uh, the the amount of abstraction UI-wise that you get because he's leveraging data binding and, you know, generics and binding list of T and, and all these great tools in uh, .NET 2.0. What do you think of Well, of I haven't looked stuff? at CSLI 2.0 yet. I haven't had okay. a chance to get there. I've been looking forward to it, and I have just not had the time to sit down with it. I'm very excited to see what he comes out data with. Data binding in general, though, you must... Right, right. I, I think it's an incredible, compelling statement from Rocky Lockett to buy into data binding. Yeah. You know, I couldn't ask for a better endorsement of the technology yeah, he after, wasn't always so. after Rev, what is this, Rev 9 yeah. of data of some form of data binding. We finally got one where a guy like Rocky says, yeah, okay, we can use this. Right. And I'd agree with that because I've shied away from data binding in the yeah, past. Yeah, well, it's burned us so many times. Right. And every time I put a lot of time into it and then after six months or 18 months, I go, Phew. but I've been working with this data binding for a while and I think it's going to really be a good way to go. And the primary reason I say that is because it's the first class binding to the business objects. You no longer have to right. go, you don't have to tie into the data set right. mentality it's, to It's to a do separation that. away from the data set. Yeah. yeah. To have that abstraction gives us the flexibility. Right. You know, the real thing is with, the, with data binding is saving code in the initial create, but then knowing I can get under the hood and make the changes I need to make for my exceptions. Right. And the, the, there's just two other things I wanted to add on that, one of which is from Rocky's point of view, I think that this CSLA is really significant. Mm -hmm. I believe that every single major person who's doing architectures will completely revamp them this year, mm -hmm. except maybe the PAG will be next year. But <laughs> 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 the... Um, I think we're going to see them rethought, and Rocky's the first person, and he's put a tremendous amount of effort into yeah. that. Well, and, and I a think lot of pain, showing, too. And a lot of pain. I mean, we, we, the, yes. we saw a lot of that in, in conversations the past year with him, of him being first. The price of being first is he found so many problems yeah. right. along the way. He fought a lot of battles for us, ultimately. Right. He debugged an awful lot of code to Sounds be first. Sounds like the Rocky show, but of course the coolest thing about him is that he's the first to admit he made a mistake. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, he's an absolute scientist when it comes to his work. You know, absolutely no ego involved. I want, to, uh, I want to run back to, you know, the, uh, there's a, I want to run back to the ORM uh, and mapping, right. the mapping issue because uh, it was, it, I'm very much a generation guy. Being a database guy, I do not like the idea of dynamic uh, communication with my database where you're, 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 your application is going to change the rules based on what it thinks is right this time. Mm. on the fly. I want to generate it. I want to see that it's consistent. I want to be able to test that version and be comfortable with it. Uh, and then we talked about the 100 versus the 300 forms thing, and it suddenly occurred to me, gee, that 300 forms case, those unimportant forms, are the place where you do want it to be dynamic because you don't want it there all the time. 
I don't actually want those 300 forms. I want one form and that is a master form and is smart enough to go and figure out what is I need to put on here now uh, based on this data model now. It should be totally dynamic. And so generally, those kinds of applications tend to be data entry applications where the forms are going to look pretty much the same anyway. Every time, yeah. But, but why do you not want them there all the time? Well, why do I not want... Why do you not want them there all the time? The forms or the data... Uh, the forms. Well, that's true. Do I really care about the forms one way or other? As a database guy, no, I don't, because in the end, the query well, is the query. But I, I hate the fact that I have 300 ugly forms. Well, maintenance. I yeah. Mean, you know, if you got all those forms, that's all. A whole lot of UI you have to rewrite when Avalon comes around. You know, well, that's perhaps. true. And on that side, you're definitely going to get a lot yeah. of leverage on that kind of updating if you do. And, and you do that whether you were generating your UI or doing it at, right. at runtime. If it's specific enough, you can do it at runtime. You could also generate if that was what you wanted to do. And, of course, the point is if it's all generated anyway, when you have to do an update, you just hit the big red button and off it goes. That's right. The, the ability of cogeneration to flex with our super architects which is the ones, the things that come down from Microsoft and tell us how we're going to have to do things, which is things like to do Avalon, you're going to have to make a change in what your UI is written like. Um, those kinds of things coming down, templates are very good at responding to. Right. Can we shift gears briefly to another topic that uh, we've been talking about recently in the .NET Rocks world anyway? Which is uh, test-driven development. <laughs> oh. And you know, Gee. Um, you got to you got to get a kick at the can of this too because we had so much fun with Rocky's kick. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so basically, we had you know we we did a DNR TV episode, which if you don't know what DNR TV is, it's a Camtasia screencast combination between a, a, a webcast and a DNR interview. So you have the interview aspect, and you can see uh, on the screen. You can what, see the code, which I guess is the, the important part. So Jean-Paul Boudou of uh, of ThoughtWorks did a two-part series on uh, test-driven development. Um, you know, it was an eye-opener for me. I knew what test-driven development was in theory, but I'd never seen anybody go ahead and do it. And, um, yeah, in the first hour, he created a drop-down combo box, uh, populated it. And in the second hour, um, when you selected an item in the combo box, it filled in the details on a web page. So that's pretty slow. Well, yeah, of <laughs> course, he wasn't, he wasn't under the gun to perform, but, you know, and, and granted... And I will say this, he went through a lot of different technologies. He went through mock objects, he went through, he was using a model view presenter uh, architecture. So, you know, there was a lot of complexity there to begin with. And the, and the price of test-driven development is the overhead that we witnessed in the DRNR TV initially. You know, his real point was that as that stuff builds up, it doesn't get harder. Yeah, and that seems to be the point of the TDD crowd, although... And, and I, you're, you're just waiting to dive in here. I pre appreciate your patience here. But, um, to, you know, so that we can give the range of support for TDD. Test-driven development, the, the hardcore guys say, write your tests first before you write the code. You write a test for it. So you're calling subs that don't exist yet. And then you write those subs, functions, methods, properties, objects, whatever. Um, then what most people do is they will use a tool like NUnit, run it, generate the tests from your code, you know, and then run those tests and go through all those tests. Uh, and then there's, you know, most what most everybody else does, which is no testing at all. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> or just ad hoc testing. And I think that pointing out that can, that broad spectrum is a really good starting point. Um, because if you say TDD to me, I think you are meaning the end of the spectrum where you are, in fact, writing your test first. And I don't think that, that in most cases yeah. 
you can justify that. At the time, it is very slow to do. What I'd like us to get to is a concept right adjacent to that, which I would call test early development. And that is, among other things, a desire, if not an absolute um, requirement, that you have tests ready when you check into source control. The reason for that is that the payoff from tests starts immediately when the test is written. It doesn't start before that. So if you were going to spend $10,000 on something that was going to give you a return, would you wait three months to do it? So if you were going to buy a stock and you had the money in your mattress, would you wait three months in order to go ahead and, and do that and make that investment because it's going to have a payoff? So I think that the earlier we can write the test, the better. But I am of the opinion that it is rarely. I do sometimes actually write the test first. Mm -hmm. If it's a specific type of thing, I can see it coming. It's got a, it's big enough in size and things that yeah. it makes sense. It's very rare that I do that. I'd much prefer to write the test as I write the code and be understanding them together at the same time. Um, I often work with things that are hard to test, and if I'm doing it together, it's easier to figure it all out. Well, I got to say, on on uh, in behalf of TUDD, in 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 defense of it, that there is a definite you know, back and forth, interactive, test, code, test, code, test, code, as you're coding, you're testing. It's not like you sit down and you write a bunch of tests and you write the code. You, you've, you've conceived the need for an object, a, a method, whatever. You write the test, then you write the object. Right. And then you go back and forth. Right. So, But I do think it's also a great mechanism for shaking out the tough problem. You know, I, I, I've related to your thinking that Sometimes I have things that are very tough to test. It's very tough for me to know this is right as a whole. And me figuring out everything that needs to happen to get to that point of rightness, I pretty much end up constructing a test to think it through. Hmm. And that's why I don't think you should ever be afraid to do test-driven development, test-first yeah. development, doing that first. It's just that those things kind of whop you upside of the head. And for the normal case, um, there's two other aspects of it that I think that are important, one of which is there's a lot of tests that we're not doing that are simple to generate. Generating tests is something I think is a huge place to open up. Um, and the, this, the second one is something that I call test-driven maintenance, and that's because any time that you see a bug that comes in from either your test staff or the field, that in fact represents two bugs. One is the bug that is actually being reported, the other is the bug in your testing that allowed it to be released. And so it is by definition right. that if we do this test-driven maintenance so that we write generally more than one test, we generally going to write, you know, three, four, five, six, seven tests in response to a particular bug, we wind up focusing our testing on those areas of the application that are most problematic to us, which is what we would like to do up front. There's right. the old 80-20 thing, 80% right. of your code, it's going to be 20% of your code is going to be 80% of the right. bugs. So uh, another point I think you're making, and is the test itself is code. Absolutely. Right? So Absolutely. you're increasing the, the possibility for bugs by writing tests. Yeah, the number of times that we've had exactly that discussion in, in a team where it's like, the question, the problem here is obviously there's a bug. Is it a bug in the code or in the test? We're not sure which. Yeah. And, and that's always, it's, a, it's always an opportunity because you get to understand the whole situation better because... If as a human you, you're trying to figure that out, then you, there's a level of understanding you probably haven't gotten to yet. I found it very interesting your thinking around the check-in point, that the check-in point of your code is that point of discipline. At this point, the rules must be followed. Before you check this mm -hmm. in, there, this chunk mm -hmm. of code in, it must have these things be mm -hmm. beforehand. And it really get to me the idea that 
Uh, a developer has a freedom inside of a specific space within his code on his machine, but when he's going to go back and play with everyone else, check that code in, become part of the integration process, he must follow these rules. So however you want to code, code, but when it comes to this point, we must have these things. And that's a great thing during development. I said that you get a lot of payback early in the process, and that's exactly when you get it. Because if I write some code, and I think I expect certain things from the rest of my application, I write that code, I write the test, everything passes, and I check that in, and Carl goes and changes something. He knows he has broken my code, and we know it immediately. Things are always harder for us if they're distanced in time or space. So if we wait three weeks before I say, who broke my code? Right. then it's going to be a whole lot more expensive to solve. Where if the next day Carl comes up and says, oh, I know I made these changes over there. Mm. So I really think that, that that's a very important payback. It also gives us a spot to do static analysis, if you want to touch for a second on that. But if we want to skip static analysis, no, no, please. do that too. <laughs> Let's tangentialize. Yeah. Well, static analysis is really hard for people today because... Um, well, I had an application recently. I was with a client. A lot of this is client code. It's not on my code. And, and um, overall, I think we were at or over 10,000 warnings when we actually started. Okay, we were using a different FX cop than what's in Visual Studio. There's a lot of them out there. But um, this one, is, I mean, that's an incredible amount of work. How many people aren't just going to throw up their hands and say, oops, we're not going to do that mm. when you see that kind of, th of thing? Mm. So I think people need to kind of understand that the history of FXCOP is that it's important inside Microsoft. If you have a, a company of 35,000 people, a majority of which are some large number of which are developers, how do you keep that in some kind of order? Just, and, just uh, I feel the need to <laughs> define FXCOP. I mean, it's a tool sure. not a lot of people use. And I've just used two terms that I treat as synonyms without even mentioning that. And there's actually three synonyms in my mind, and that's static analysis, code analysis and FXCOP. And what each of these words, the, the tool behind each of these, um, looks at your code, generally a uh, kind of compiled, decompiled kind of version of your code, various ways that can technically do it, and looks at things like your names, your um, uh, how you, you're, you're casting variables. There's Conventions. hundreds of different tests. And some of these are very important tests around localization, mm. uh, security protection, mm. localization, um, if you've got a commitment to localization and somebody sticks, starts sticking strings into your files, you find that out immediately rather than finding it out when you send it to the uh, out to be localized. And so it's, it's a good idea. The problem is it's absolutely overwhelming to implement. Um, we did a, a sample in a talk yesterday where I showed some code. We found three or four errors in the version inside Visual Studio. Did not find those, but found seven others, some mm. of which were significant, some of which weren't. Mm. And so what I suggest people do with static analysis is to pick two or three rules you can live with. Just don't try to do all the rules. That's what's killing people. Yeah, the, the problem is the all that stuff's turned about. on when you install it. I know, but you can go uncheck the boxes. Yeah, you, you, gonna, know? you have to do that. You just got to pick. And the right. pain's really that you always bring this tool in halfway through the project. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and get, well, wow, we got to stop everything for the next six weeks and get all these warnings dealt with. Right. And I, so I think that, I mean, for me, the localization ones are some of the most important ones. So, you know, pick an area, pick two, three, four rules, maybe add two or three rules a week. Find out what's important right. to your organization. Some of those performance ones, man, I don't even agree with. Yeah. It's got a thing on static, not having static methods because oh, they're yeah. slower. And I'm like... You should decide whether something's a shared or a static method based on whether the callers are going to want to use it on an instance or a class. Right. 
That's the whole reason you should make that call. Maybe when you're writing Word or Excel, you should worry about it from a performance aspect, well, maybe but not our code. Five or ten years ago, you could have worried about that. Yeah. And it's on privates, too. And I'm really wondering why a private <laughs> um, method going to be in the virtual table anyway, which is where the whole performance question comes mm -hmm. in. So... The point being just, pick the things that matter to you. Pick a small handful. Get to work on static analysis. Mm. Have it be part of your future. It should be part of all of our future. Well, and I do like the fact that you're saying question the rules. Right. Don't Absolutely. take them as gospel. Right. Right. I have a tough time with performance arguments a lot of time because, hey, I got more horsepower and I know what to do with these days. You know, you can't justify 100 hours of development to squeeze 10% performance out. Right, and you can't justify something that will be more difficult to read in the future for performance. I feel like because they came from a particular focus, these things put performance over maintainability, and I believe that that's an error. It's, it's, if we wanted performance, we'd be using C++, right? Yeah. I mean, well, I if we wanted ultimate performance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. How do I yeah, that always kills the conversation. <laughs> Just bring up C++. <laughs> you hear crickets. Well, it goes, it goes on in my house a lot, but I'm not the one doing it. My yeah. son does a lot of C++ stuff um, right. and uh, works on – he does competitive coding with Top Coder, and that's uh, yeah. kind of an interesting thing. In yeah, and I was, as I was saying at lunch the other day, your, your kids are in a class all by themselves, I can tell. <laughs> They're you know, scary. When, when you're looking at – we're talking about education and, and uh, you know, programming in school and, and computer science in school, and, you know, and, and your, your view of what kids need and do is probably a little skewed because you have the brainiacs at home. Well, I do have two little brainiacs, and my brother is uh, about to graduate Graduate next December with a Ph.D. in math education. So the subject of how we teach complex abstract con concepts is a conversation over dinner around yeah. my house sometimes. Yeah. And so when we look at that, right now we have no computer education departments in this country, to my knowledge. We have math education departments, and the math education department is the pedagogy, the how do people learn about math. Right. We don't have that about computer science. No, we really which, don't. Right. Which is a shame because... Because we're moving statistics into our elementary schools. That's part of the new change I think it's moving too fast for them, personally. That's, well, that's a big problem. What we're not moving into elementary schools is logic. And I realize that we have to go fairly slowly because it's a big drain on teachers. To you know, We have teachers that don't really quite understand mm. why when you flip the coin after 100 heads, why the next one is still 50% heads and 50% yeah. tails. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to put down elementary teachers. I love them. They're, they're great. But when we have people still working at that level and we're yeah. asking them to teach our children statistics, that's yeah. where we're at now. But I want to see computer science taught in the second or third grade to get logic out because the logic yep. of if, if conditionals and loops – is, it's going to be part of everything that we do, and I want these Problem kids to solving. learn it. Right. Well, and it's an interesting distinction between understanding how to use a computer and the logic of computers, the science yeah. of computers. It's a very different thing. What I'm seeing taught in the schools are the fundamentals, right. which is all well and fine. Uh, you know, well, at some point we taught our kids how to use a pencil too. Uh, so we're going to have to teach them to use a machine in some way. But, uh, yeah, you don't see a lot of education at all along the lines of how do we actually program these things? How do we make them do something? That's right. And I, and I would debate whether that's actually all that relevant at the elementary school level. The is, reason I want it at the elementary school level is not because these children need to know how to program or may ever program, but because the thought, the way that you think in that kind of logical terms, yeah. I think helps the overall development of, yeah. you know, what we're doing in terms of trying to teach kids at that at that level. And I think that eventually it's likely to be part of our math program. What do you think of the Sudoku craze? Sudoku, anybody play? Raise your hand if you play. 
I'm addicted. I have no clue. You got to define. All right, Sudoku is a game that started in the United States in one of those Dell puzzle game books. And this guy in Pennsylvania made it up. And it's basically a grid of classically nine squares. Each square is separated into three columns and three rows. So you have nine uh, numbers within each square and then nine squares in a big square. And the idea is that you start the puzzle with uh, a few numbers scattered around and you have to fill in the rest of them. Now the rule is... Every row has to have only one through nine. Every column has to have only one through nine. And every square has to have only one through nine. And no duplicates. And actually, I now do know what you're talking about. And I, I just want to real quick flip to a real interesting problem, okay? Okay. Top Coder has a new thing called Marathon. Top Coder, it, it's topcoder.com, I think. Um, does com competitive programming, okay? Yes. They have a new thing called Marathon Matches, which run longer. They run for several days. And the, one of the problems, they've only done like three problems. It's brand new. One of them was that, and I, there was some other complexities to it, but I know it was a 64 by 64 square. Yeah. Neat. Same problem, 64 Neat. by 64. Well, you know, I just was, my brother passed me, somebody has written a Sudoku solver with T-SQL. <laughs> I will share that with you. Because database querying languages are so good at solving logic problems. Apparently, this thing rocks. Oh, so I will, I will post that for your amusement on uh, on the show. Just like to remind the listeners right now that uh, .NET Rocks is brought to you by sponsors, without whom this show would not be possible. If our sponsors decided not to advertise, we wouldn't have a show. So uh, uh, one of those sponsors is Data Dynamics, and they make a product called ActiveReports.net. If you've been listening to the show for a number of years, you probably know about it. But if you haven't seen it in a while, go check it out at datadynamics.com. Uh, it's a great reporting tool. We love it. We use it. And uh, a lot of the regional directors also swear by it. So datadynamics.com, and tell them thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. So a question from the audience, isn't test-driven development really a design methodology that forces you to think more about your design because you're, you're being more intimate with your, with your design before you, before you actually code? It's, I think part of that answer comes from looking at what level of testing we're working at. That's absolutely true at a function, functional level, and I think you should be thinking about testing. And if you have a system you can't test, I think you should consider that at early on in a design and architecture point, okay, when we're looking at unit testing, small pieces of our application, mm -hmm. it's less true, I think, because a lot of that's a programmer call on how I'm going to break this problem down, and that's not mm -hmm. a generalized planning problem, that's just a me thinking about what I'm doing problem, and I think it's less important at that point. It still has some validity, what you're saying there, but at that point, I'm just working to make the pieces work together, rather than trying to figure out whether I even know what the problem is. Um, I would look forward to the day, and I have no doubt we will get there, that sometime, 10 years from now, that our requirements will actually be written as tests. The problem is the people doing requirements are a long way from being able to do that. Yeah. Um, but that's the way I want people to give me requirements, is tell me in words what those tests should accomplish. And that's the idea behind scenarios. It just doesn't work out very well. But it, tests. aren't you basically describing our job as consultants, is to take those 
sort of vague requirements and crystallize to the point where you can define them as tests. That's absolutely true, and I think that when the process becomes exactly what you're saying, then definitely that. I think the Agile people are right about the value of this. I just think in today's world, and I kind of try to be pretty pragmatic about it, I think it's very hard to actually do that in today's world. When I talk to somebody about how to go from a fluffy idea of an app to an app, I'm not going to be able to talk that concrete version in terms of tests. I'm going to have to talk in terms of UI design and maybe a little bit of flow, maybe a little bit of calculations, but I'm not going to be able to talk about tests. Okay. It strikes me there's an awful lot of elements around that that seem to pre presume one right way. You know, especially when you get into UI, if I'm really going to come up with a perfect test for that, it presumes that there's only one right way to build that, and there isn't. In terms of the detail, that's true, and I think that's a different way of saying what I'm saying there. In terms of the functionality, so for instance, I recently did um, a, a project, I'm actually still working on it, that's taking very, very complex multiple XML documents, loading it into an object model that represents it. And it was a very difficult thing to plan on testing until we had the inspiration that, oh, yeah, one of our other requirements is that we output the XML from the same object model. So once we got that, we could round trip, compare the XML documents, and say, cool. And so we were able to test that one, but we had to figure out the testing as part of the I've strategy. Almost, in the past couple of weeks, I've been pouring myself on a project, uh, working nonstop, fixing it's actually a, a bunch of server failures. And we're, it was the same sort of problem. This is a many-step process on a transaction, where this transaction was routed through all these different systems. And I knew one of the requirements I was going to have to deliver on eventually was a tool that would tell me what happened to this transaction. Go check all the places that it went and, and what touches and so forth there were. And then I realized about halfway through the process of making sure everything works, I need that tool to figure out if everything else is working anyway. And I, and I needed it early rather than at the end when everything was working. And I, th I think that illustrates the place that we are at right now with testing, that you know, Agile brought it into our, our discussions, which was important. But we're slowly bringing it into our thinking. Um, I, I look forward to the day that we think of that a little earlier than halfway through the project because because we're thinking earlier, how are we going to test this? How are we going to test this? Because if it's not testable, it's a deep problem. It's right. a, Even if everything else works perfectly, if you don't know it works perfectly, what are you going to do with that? Product. Generally, the problem comes down to stuffing too much in a particular uh, atom is, or unit, isn't that right? That's one of the things. That sometimes it can be that just the problem <laughs> you're solving is just so bizarre that yeah. you've got other issues, you don't understand the problem, or some things are really, really hard to test. And yeah. like if we were just going one way into this particular right, model, right, right. that would be really, really hard to test. Well, it seems to me to be an interesting opportunity. Both of you and I have described now a case where one of the requirements of the project, a deliverable, involved a test element. Not that it was called a test element, but it happened to do test-like mm. things. Mm. Right. It makes me think, in the early stages of a project, I ought to go through and comb for requirements that actually are a form of testing as well. I think that's a great idea. I think so, that that's part of what we should be doing, and then I think when we don't find them, um, for instance, the project that you were just talking about, um, I think I would argue that if that project has significance, it's a non-trivial project, you have to build that tool that was a requirement, even if it's not a requirement. Right. So if we're also coming requirements with an idea of, ooh, how am I going to test this puppy, then you're, you're going to develop a plan, and you may have to create something and have it become part of your requirement, simply so the system becomes testable. Um, if we look at only functionality, sometimes we don't have the spot to test it, and we do have to build more features into it. 
I think it's also a huge confidence builder. I mean, if you're talking about trying to find reasons to build fairly elaborate chunks of code that are really for testing, you're downplaying its significance by calling it testing. The fact that once I had that tool running, I was able to show it to a manager and say, look, look at what happened to this transaction. It was here, it is here, it is here, it is here, and all these things happened to it. And he's like, feels a hundred times better because he now has a sense of what happened. So many different pieces of code acted on this chunk of data along the way. And here's a detailed record of what happened. And he can ask for it anytime on any chunk of data. And as soon as he was able to do that, he didn't ask anymore. Well, the purpose of testing is to give our systems validity. So if we want another name for it, we could come up with it. But really, you're right. That's what testing is there to do, is to give us all confidence, to give us as programmers the tremendous luxury of confidence that when we start making changes, we haven't just broken everything. Right. Well, and I think sharing that confidence outside of the development circle, make it available to the administrators and the managers (laughs) so that they have a button they can push that makes a happy noise. That's an interesting idea. Continuous integration sort of is a process that works to that level. In the sense that it tells the managers that there's progress being made on a regular basis, new code being checked in and put to work. On Hanselman, (laughs) we were talking with Scott Hanselman, or I was, about continuous integration. He he called out some tools. There's like some strobe lights that you can get and hook up to the to the process that will go off, you know, when when a when the testing when the bug level goes up or you got a bug or red lights flash and stuff and all the developers can see it, you know. Some really innovative tools. It's funny how effective those silly things are. That's true. Just just things things that create some visualization. Captain on the bridge. (laughs) For the for the right team I think that's good. I also personally think that Given a many teams, the majority of our teams aren't gigantic teams. If you yeah. break the build, it's going to be inconvenient. It's not going to be a disaster. So those kinds of let's be embarrassing about it, I, I don't know that it fits all teams primarily because, I mean, I'd say that many teams, if you don't break the build once or twice during this project, you aren't working hard enough. Oh, sure. Well, in, in, in a I way, all the more reason to have a klaxon because you've succeeded. Yeah, break the build! You know, well, I mean, I don't think you want to. You want to do everything you can not to. You know, And I work right now on a project that I'd be horrified if I broke the build because there's 20-some-odd <laughs> people that are involved, and so it'd be horrible. Um, but... But I do think that we have to put it in perspective is that we are risk takers. You know, we're yeah. in there coding. Our primary job right. is, to, is to keep coding and to, to have problems as they're encountered resolved very, very quickly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that breaking a build is the end of the world. No. It's not somebody no, that would fire anybody. Yeah, in order to solve a oh, problem, sure. you had to have one in the first place. Yeah, but it, it's a good idea not to break the well, build. No, well, the whole idea or to, to break the testing. The whole idea also is to give the whole team feedback immediately, which could also be, you know, extended to business people or whoever else wants to be known, you know, just to be able to look at something and monitor the health of the build, of the current build over the day. Uh Yeah. So what else is on your mind, Kathleen? Well, I've um, been doing a lot of Ineta speeches this year. Yeah. So um, I kind of guess I want to shout out to all the Ineta user groups around. And um, I think that it's great if you don't have an Ineta user group. I think it's a great time to look at starting one. We're moving into some academic stuff. I'm not deeply involved with that, but if you have a university, um, we are moving more into the academic spectrum, getting some speakers out to academics. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a whole lot of speeches this year. I'll do a few less next year, but um, I certainly if somebody's interested in having me come to their group, they can contact me or contact Ineta um, and work that into my schedule. Mm-hmm. But I was most recently, I came back from the Gulf Coast. Oh, yeah. I yeah, spent so uh, a week uh in Pascagoula, New Orleans, mm-hmm. Mobile, and Hattiesburg. Mm-hmm. And so that was quite an experience uh, to be down there. How did it look? Well, 
it's really quite it's 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 quite overwhelming um, even now and we're now quite a few months out and it's absolutely incredible um, in Pascagoula which is where um, kind of the brunt of the storm hit in the Pascagoula Biloxi area mm -hmm. and there you have hurricane damage which means um, that everything and I mean everything including houses that were have been there for since before the turn of the century, perhaps even older wow. than that, they're referred to as antebellum, which I think it was before 1860, so I don't know if that was correct, are wow. gone. I mean, they're not just damaged, they're gone, missing entirely. Wow. And so what happened there was the storm surge was so high that it took things out. Hmm. My aunt's house um, and my cousin's house are both, um, they're both back a good bit from the beach, and they had a lot of water. I think it's about a, almost a mile to where the bakery hmm. um, got taken out. But so, so we're, it's still in the, people are still in the process of trying to get back and, and move forward with their lives um, in that type of situation. The bakeries, yeah. Anderson Bakery in Pascagoula, Mississippi, if you're mm. there, go by and okay. uh, and get a donut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then the, you know, we did go over to the casinos, and right now basically the one that's open is real crowded, you know, mm. so it's it, that's going to come back. It's going to take a really long time. Um, and then going over towards New Orleans, the problem was just entirely different. And I, I guess I haven't been listening to enough of the news because I didn't know that that the, the levees in New Orleans did not break because the hurricane destroyed them. They broke because they were not built according to the engineering specification right. they were given. Yeah, and I hadn't right. heard that. And I was so appalled to hear that, that basically the ground was wet and there was the, they were deeper. They never overtopped, but they were deeper. And they blew out at the bottoms. And I saw, we went by and saw where they blew out and where the houses are more or less gone mm. because they were right next to a levee breach. Mm. And there, there's just mile after mile after mile of, of a ghost town where people had three or four feet of water in their houses or eight feet of water in their mm. houses, and they don't have electricity yet. And, you know, the, the whole infrastructure um, of New Orleans is just not coming back right now. And, and frankly, I think it's something that, you know, we can all be concerned about from a personal basis. What can we do to help this disaster that's still going on down there? Yeah. Um, and also, I think from, you know, whatever your political position is, I think we would all agree that the government, part of the government you know, our superstructure, infrastructure, part of that is electricity. And you can't rebuild a home without electricity. Right. And so, you know, they really, we really need to, to solve problems and get people moving towards being back in their homes because it's going to destroy the economy for all of us. If we don't, we're going to see a huge number of bankruptcies. Is there any progress being made now? Are they, are they rebuilding? Is there an effort underway? But, both. There is a lot of progress. I was driving with a friend of mine, um, and he was saying that streetlight was not there two weeks ago. I know that. Hmm. And so there's there, it's coming back in terms of some of the streetlights and that kind of thing. He said right now they have a little problem with traffic accidents because they got so much in the habit of coming to a stop sign, looking both ways and going, that they didn't notice that now there's a light and the person coming is going to smash into it. <laughs> I'm sure they worked that out, but yeah. the um, they are making progress. There's areas they're not because where there's no electricity yet. Right. Um, there's there's areas that are not really making much progress at all. There's other areas that are uh, the FEMA trailers coming in. Um, lots and lots of both Mississippi and Louisiana. Lots of FEMA trailers. So did you go down there to visit? Uh, just to, to see what it was like, or did you go for a specific reason? I was on an United tour, so okay. I spoke in uh, I spoke in New Orleans, Mobile, and Hattiesburg, and okay. uh, the groups there were great. I enjoyed that, and just I mean I don't want to brag on myself too much, but I also want to make sure it's clear that I'll put my money where my mouth is in terms of saying I think that the citizens of the U.S. still need to reach out to the Gulf Coast. My yeah. honorarium from two of the, from the Mississippi and Louisiana speech are going to hurricane relief in, in good, total. 
And, um, you know, I'd already planned on going to New Mobile. That had been scheduled, and I said I could just hook those things on the edge of it, and it wasn't going to put me out very far, and I could go ahead and help some other people out. And the Hattiesburg Talk was the very first user group, I believe, in Mississippi. So that was great, too. Wow. The first talk, first Arneta Talk in Mississippi. What were you talking about? Uh, in Hattiesburg or the other places? You did different talks at different yes. locations? <laughs> Both Mobile and New Orleans, I did generics. And then at Hattiesburg, it was students. And so I was talking more about what they can expect when they get out there, more about what does the industry look like, what does it mean to get out into the real world. I really enjoyed those career talks. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I do, I do a lot of high schools and universities mm -hmm. in, the, in, in and around uh, Vancouver and talk over, I mean, for better or for worse, been in the industry a long time. I've pretty much done every job. So from, from building them to programming them, games, business software, you name it. So it's, it's fun to talk to them about that and also to get the feedback of people's perceptions of what our industry is like from the outside. Yes. Yeah, so I, I definitely think it's been changing over the past few years. So what are they, what are they thinking? What are they What's the focus of students these the days? Students, um, I was. I have to say that I was really surprised they weren't clear as to what they. Many of them were not clear as to what they want to do. I would. I asked them, you know, do you want to go into this kind of programming, that kind of programming, and um, they. They. I think most of them were looking for a job. I'm sure a lot of them are pretty spooked by the prospect of, you know, spending a lot of time in computer science and then seeing their jobs go overseas. You know, which they've seen their their parents and their you know their the older people around them happen. You know, a lot of people losing their jobs. Well, we didn't really talk directly about that. That didn't come up, which is kind of interesting, I suppose, that it didn't directly come up. Um, you know, my personal feeling is that if there's code that can go overseas easily, we should readdress how we're writing that code. Yeah, Not because I have there. a problem with with other countries doing development. I just think that to go across very large time frames and language boundaries. Is, makes it difficult, and I want the person who's you know understands this application to be writing it, not somebody who's writing it from a specification. Things change all the time. Now I know some people have more and less success, but I once did a project with an Australian, and we had time and language problems there, and so we had right. <laughs> going to a completely different language would be uh, difficult. One of the things I've noticed uh, in my recent conversations with the university level has been uh, that the gaming industry, the industry of building game software is now being looked on very grimly. Yeah. Uh, that it used to be, that was what everybody wanted to do. It used to be the glamour. It used to be the job. greatest job you could possibly have. And I'd go in and talk to a group of students and they'd say, say uh, who wants to be a games programmer? And they'd go nuts. That's all they wanted to do. And the last couple of times, the word's gotten out, you know, that the gaming, the games industry has figured out that everybody wanted to work for them. So they, they're just terrible to their people. And now the word's gotten out, it is not a fun place to work. Well, and I think a game, because the money involved, it's like you define death march and, you know, you look it up in the dictionary and that's yep. what you see is a yeah. dungeon from some gaming company. And yep. so I was pleased I had only, I maybe had somebody else, I know I had one, one young man who said he did want to go into gaming. And I spoke with him afterwards, and, and I said, you need to realize what a grimy industry you're looking at going into. And uh, he said, well, you know, he starts talking about it. And this guy's a gamer. He's just a serious gamer. Right. And he didn't. He started programming two years ago mm. because he's, he, that he really wants he's to inspired. change some things. Yeah. 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 And so he came at it not from a programmer who thought that would be fun, but from somebody who's really intending to do that. And I think he's got his head on knowing that, you know, he needs to get out of the trenches and mm. be doing more production stuff if he wants to make the kind of difference that he was talking to me about. Well, and it's hard, you know, it's hard to refute his motivation, too. He's not looking oh, for a he's job. Great. He's got a vision Absolutely. about what. The way he wants to change things and he's going to do it. Absolutely. And I think it's that passion 
And I think that passion breeds success in whether we're um, you know, already out of college or still in college. If you're passionate about this industry and you can manage change, because we will continue to change for a very, very long time, yeah. we put ourselves out of a job and we quit changing. I mean, that is why this industry exists is because no gener- co-generation, nothing else is going to manage the level of change we have to do. And we're not keeping up very well to do it. Well, I think the, the power of the passion element of that is that you stop caring about what you do to get to your goal. You care about the goal. You'll change everything to get to the goal. If you really got a vision about a better way to, to accomplish something, you don't really care what tools you need to know to do that. You'll learn them. You'll change your skill set to achieve what you're after. And speaking of tools, Kathleen, um, you mentioned CodeSmith. Are there any other tools that you're using these days uh, for doing any of the work that you're doing? Well, I'm actually not using CodeSmith. Um, I still do XSLT um, okay. when I'm doing code generation. And I'm actually, um, I have. I, I don't want to say anything bad about the third-party community, but right now I am third-party free um, okay. on the stuff that I'm you're doing. You're between tools. No, I'm actually doing everything I need to do without tools right now. Okay. And so I'm not sure that that's, that that's necessarily good, but we are so powerful in the wind forms in 2005 mm. um, that we can, do, we can make Outlook-style interfaces without a third-party control, <laughs> and it's not that hard to do. I was uh, showing Julie uh, Lehrman something, and she looked over my shoulder and she said, that's cool, what tool is it? And I said, well, mine. She said, I mean, what third-party tool did you use? And I said, no, that's my talk. That's what we're, that's what we're looking yeah. at is building this. So those kind of things are very doable now. And, and um, then I get, I get done what I need to do right now without it. Do you see any tools coming out of Microsoft that are going to uh, uh, address the code generation space? Yeah, there's a really exciting thing going on with Microsoft that um, I'm really glad that you brought up because I really like to – this is kind of a moment in history that people aren't really recognizing. Microsoft has now released a, um, a template-based code generation tool and they're not admitting that's what it is, which is why it's amazing. <laughs> uh, they're calling it something entirely different. What are and they calling it? They're calling it DSL, or Domain-Specific Language Support. And this is a, a tool that's now downloadable. It's available. And basically, it's a way that you can put graphics, boxes and arrows, onto uh, a surface. And then you can have templates that create the code you want behind it. This was um, one of the beautiful things. And I've been watching Microsoft for so long. They now see the point. They get it that when they need to do something, somebody else probably will too. And this is a key piece to how they built Whitehorse. It's a key piece to how they built some of their internal pieces, and they decided the underlying technology was important. Now, when you think about domain-specific languages, it's easy to get with a traditional concept of a domain, which means banking, you know, uh, justice, something like that. Yeah, no, you got to toss it out for a few minutes, at least for for a few years, really. Um, what you, I think you should think in ter- terms of is forms over data or uh, CSLA or yeah. something else which is a, str- it's a, strategi- it's a strategy, strategic architecture. Mm-hmm. It's what I think we're going to be expressing that. It's very new. I haven't done much with it, but I'm really excited that it's out there. And it's, if Microsoft sticks with it, of course, a couple times they've kind of headed down directions and not mm-hmm. followed through. Mm-hmm. But this time I think we have, a, we have the potential of this really updating the code generation world. Fabulous. What else? Uh, we're getting to the end of the show, and I like to ask my guests, you know, what's the coolest thing you've seen online lately, tools that you've downloaded, uh, sites that you've seen? And I'll just tell you the most popular things are Skype. You know, Skype is hits the top of the list every time. And um, Windows Live when Windows it's a blue Live badge. when it's a blue badge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, well, uh, you know, 
Take I, it, I, anything at all you want to. Yeah, I, I'm so boring because I, <laughs> I really, it's. I have to admit, I'm somebody who still basically doesn't like the internet very much. Um, so it's so <laughs> painful for me to be on with you guys. Your maiden such... name Kaczynski? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Um, but but it, it, so it's so it's, it's kind of a challenging question, and, and I actually think I'm gonna gonna just give a plug for internet radio in general. Um, I listen cool. to KCUV out of Denver, um, KRFC out of Fort Collins, and the ability to get um, the music that you want, which for me is uh, some kind of specific types of Americana, uh, to get that on your desktop anytime you want it. To me, that's the coolest thing, and I just love it. It's very cool. To Internet me. radio is very cool. Yeah. Of course, we listen to podcasts around my house, yeah. and um, the ones that I listen to mostly are at NPR.org. And I find that I'm listening to shows that are produced in different states that we don't get on our local NPR stations that I've never even heard of before that are great. And we talked about passion, and that's what we see in these um, local produced, um, like there's a guy out of New York who has big band radio, and he's talking. Yeah. we're talking about some stuff you can't even imagine these records. Or we're talking about somebody, there's one that comes, I believe, out of Denver that is the Grateful Dead Hour, and it is somebody oh, cool. who knows the Grateful Dead inside out, sideways, and backwards. He has an hour every week on the Grateful Dead, and also some takeoffs now, because he doesn't just play the same songs over and over again. Eventually, People we'll get through the catalog. with that yeah. much right. passion about that particular genre of music, that's who I want to be t- yeah. spinning tunes and for And since me. every show they ever played was recorded, there's no end to the material that guy could be spinning on that yeah. show. So. Yeah. Yeah, we were just listening to a podcast uh, that NPR picked up called The Theory of Everything. Yes. It was pretty good. I'll, I'll put a link to that, too. Interesting stuff out there. All right, well, thank you very much, Kathleen. It's great catching up with you and talking about what you're interested in. Thank you very much. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a toy boy.